Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss Organic 96, which brought the Chemical Brothers to the United States and showed real music biz muscle getting behind rave. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? And if I was saying that, you know, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And we are up to chapter, what is it, chapter 11 or 12? Something chapter like 11. That. Chapter 11, Organic 96, San Bernardino, California, June 22nd, 1996. But once again, be warned. Matos is going to sneak in a whole lot of discussion of 93, 94, and 95 into this chapter, so we're not just jumping four years ahead. I mean, I think the last chapter was on 96, too, but the one before that was like 92 or 93. So anyway, we're covering a lot of history of the music as well as the business. And this one seemed to me, this is kind of the story of when American concert promoters first get a whiff that there might be something they want to get in on here. Yeah, it was like a, a kind of like a one-off it was a kind of a proto-corporate rave festival, and the lineup for Organic was all live acts, uh, and and that was by design. It was a concert promoter who who ended up doing it, and he decided to just bring in like Underworld, Chemical Brothers, Meet Meet Manifesto, and the Orb all live. And uh, you know, in order to explain who these guys are to the readers, Matos then takes us back through some UK rave music history to show to explain where these guys came from. And we also get some American electronic music label history with with Astral Works and Moonshine, the guys that were signing them. Concise summary of the chapter and uh, a nod of the head to Matos's uh, writerly craft, which we've all been enjoying. And so, yeah, the guy in question is uh, Jerry or Gary Gerard. Uh, Gary Gerard is Gary how Gerard. I, I imagine. Okay, all right, I'll go with that. That's uh, uh, more than I've got. Um, he's he came out of the punk background, uh, late seventies promoter in San Francisco. Then he became a tour manager for eighties UK acts in the U.S. Um, since punk sort of failed in the U.S. and and the initial burst in 77, 79, a lot of people that were involved with it got into the business of promoting them indie. I mean, the English acts that were coming out of that scene, and he was one of those people. He worked his way up until uh, partnering with the American group Nine Inch Nails and became their, I assume, tour manager as well or promoter. I'm not sure exactly what his title, but he was in there. But he had also been scouting the UK post-Acid House scene. So, and, and he was clever about it. Like, he wouldn't go to London or Manchester where all the sharks were circling. He would go go to Scotland you know, go go to the ends of the earth and and find these guys. He cornered the shaman in Scotland. Um, he saw a prodigy at Rave New World, but didn't think they were ready. And, and they hadn't made it in Europe yet um, and weren't as big as they were going to get in England. So he wanted them to ripen, as it were, in, in Europe. He called it the Jimi Hendrix rule. Jimi Hendrix was an American guitar player who, after years as a R&B backup musician, went to London and became a big star and came back to the States as a star and that allowed him to succeed. So that's kind of a rule of thumb for bringing acts over from the UK is that they've got to make it in their native land first. And the key distinction, and, and Gerard gets this, was that rock promoters did concerts, dance promoters did parties. And with parties, it matters who invites you so that you needed to have the right promotional and street teams, essentially, to, to promote this stuff. If you think that's a fair 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always important who gives the flyers out. I mean, there's a certain amount of cool that needs to come with uh, a promo team. But, you know, the big the big thing that he pointed out is that 90 percent of us don't do DJs. And that's like a, a headspace that we have to kind of go back in time to recognize, because in the mid 90s, you're still battling this mentality that live music is king and DJing is definitely not as serious. And, and it was funny, you know, doing the previous seasons covering uh, of techno role covering books that came out in the mid nineties and how much time the books, the authors spent justifying the DJ, like taking pains to explain what a DJ is and why they are important and musically relevant and a key element of raving and stuff. And that's just not something you have to do anymore. People intimately understand the role. Now, no one's confused when asked to shell out 30 bucks to see a DJ, but in the nineties as Gerard said, the average American still thinks a DJ is somebody on the radio and there's no dragging them out to a DJ event. Yep. Yep, exactly. And that was one of the big cultural limitations um, that America had. And, you know, one of the things with disco as disco never quite taking over England, I think, and then missing most of the ensuing backlash, I think it was easier for, for acid house to explode because you had, and had disco and, and the ensuing backlash like you did in the States. And that backlash in the States was brutal and was still kind of hanging over into the late 90s, a full, you know, uh, 15, 16 years after the backlash had happened. Um, then he works up into um, a discussion of some of the genres that are going around at that point. Uh, talks about ambient, which he hasn't talked about ambient yet, has he? Uh, not really. I mean, every so often Aphex Twin gets brought up and Ambient Works always kind of comes in and he does that again. So we, we've touched, he tiptoes around trance a bit. He tiptoes around Ambient a bit. So it's kind of a repeating thing. I'm waiting for the main course. And I guess this kind of applies for American, for the American music industry, because this is when Ambient came in and was a big deal in, in, in CD stores. Yeah, yeah, and that's then that's the connection there. It, it had had a big moment, and we've talked about it on previous episodes. Um, we, I think we did a whole episode on ambient, um, a couple and a couple that have touched on it. But it had a big pop movement in the early '90s. The Orb and the KLF, uh, KLF's Chick Chill Out was a big album, which was on Wax Tracks in the states. So again, Wax Tracks is this kind of rave dance adjacent label that mainly an industrial label um, and labels had figured out that copying warp records artificial intelligence comp compilation or Aphex twins um selected ambient works that you mentioned was more likely to sell to non-ravers than hardcore comps hardcore comps would sell to ravers but ravers at this point are a minuscule proportion of the american population and your general music listeners the big fish that they're after and so ambient is something they explore and this guy brian long curates a compilation called excursions and ambience puts it out uh caroline records puts it out in march 93 caroline was a big indie they weren't quite a major label but they were damn close before they uh, um at this point and then uh sold twenty thousand copies and got the new york times so that's kind of the beginning long came out of sst records which was the hardcore punk record record label that put out black flag who's could do Minutemen. Bad Brains, Sonic Youth, Soundgarden, etc. Um, and he had converted himself earlier in the 90s. He had had a hard guitars-only bias, kind of like I was back in the day. But then he worked at Rockpool and lived in New York City. And so in the office, other people were playing their techno and house music. And he started to recognize, oh, this sucks. Oh, this is good. You know, and kind of got, worked his way through the genres and living in New York City. You had to go out to the club, going out to the clubs to socialize. You heard this music. So he becomes a fan. Moved over to Caroline Records in 92. He's also doing A&R for the UK label Play It Against Sam and uh, the Belgian Antler Subway label, who they had Lords of Acid. Now he gets into a little side discussion about Lords of Acid and their uh, 1991's semi-hits, underground hits, Bust, and I Sit on Acid, which sold 100,000 copies in the States. And then he mentions that they were also on Ruben's white labels, his digital orgasm. Of course, that didn't sell 100,000 copies. <laughs> yeah, Ru Ruben re-released one of the Lord of Acid uh, albums as well, but uh, Digital Orgasm was the non-explicit um, wing of, of Lords of Acid. Like, pretty much, you listen to Lords of Acid, they're a novelty act. Half their songs are, are just, like, 
the spoken word pornography. It's pretty, uh, I, I kind of regret not including one of their tracks uh, in, in the episode, but yeah, it was very much like a, a novelty. It, it's, it's, it's the Euro dance hockey music, hockey arena music with porno lyrics on top. So there's Lords of Acid for you right there. And now that is an important cultural configuration, but it's time to pick the song, play the song that you did pick. And this is the grids crystal clear clear like an unmuddied lake remix by the orb from Grids Crystal Clear, the Clear Like an Unmuddied Lake remix by The Orb from 1993. Why did we pick this one? Uh, well, we were talking about excursions in ambience, and this is one of the tracks off that. And it's just like a little reminder that the same guys, like The Grid, they were making some really big dance music, and The Orb obviously became a, a, a pretty big act, not just for you know their their kind of down-tempo sounds but they had they had a pretty good live show as well so i just thought it was a good combination of 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 showing you the kind of chill that was making it onto these compilations and also the fact that it was being made by the same guys who were doing everything else cool and um so there's a follow-up um to excursions on ambience but caroline creates a, a an imprint astral works an imprint is a sort of you know it's got its own label branding but it's actually inside the business infrastructure of a larger label. So Astroworks is an imprint owned by Caroline, put out four volumes total um, and started to include original tracks. So they kind of backed into it. He calls calls them a rarity, a credible American electronic dance label that was sired by an established label rather than a homegrown indie like Plus 8 or Underground Resistance. So uh, he's basically... He's kind of kicking Rick Rubin. He's using Rick Rubin as um, his narrative patsy in a way where he's pointing out Rick Rubin's failures. And that's totally fair since Rick Rubin has had so few of them. <laughs> such yeah, a- he dropped the ball on the dance music thing and a bunch of people kind of rushed in and, and did what you would figure he would have done if he wasn't so busy being successful in everything else that he ever did. Yeah, exactly. And um, so but this this label manages to do what Rick Rubin could not and, and becomes a credible homegrown American label. Then he gets into a discussion of trip hop, which again, we've done whole episodes on trip hop. And he talks about how um, by this point in England, drum and bass, which is a variant of jungle, had largely replaced ambient in the party second room. So parties would have a big room to play, say, Acid House, and then they'd have a second room for chill out music, or they'd have a jungle main room and they'd have a house uh, as the second room. And so drum and bass has become um, the has replaced ambient and party second rooms. Is he referring to the States here or England? Uh, I believe the States as well. I mean, it happened kind of everywhere where if you're going to have, this is, this was my mentality when I was throwing parties. If you're going to, if you have a second room, that's important. That's, 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 that's valuable real estate and you can have a chill room anywhere and it doesn't need anything, but a second room, why not throw a second sound system in there? And at this point, drum and bass is is coming up big, and it's a different enough sound and vibe that you can't really just mesh it in with the with with what you're doing in the techno room. So it, it's kind of it kind of makes sense to put it in its own space where it can breathe and 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 germinate its own thing. Okay, and then but then he talks about trip hop. So I'm kind of confused by the segue. Uh, I guess he's talking about the different new forms of music coming out of England, and that. It's not drum and bass. It's trip hop that catches the ear of the typical collegiate yank, which was like me. I was trip hop was one of the first styles. I didn't even know it was coming out of the EDM scene. I just heard it as some weird kind of mutant form of rap jazz pop coming out of England that I thought was cool. And um, most of the acts were English, uh, even DJ Shadow out of Davis, California, whose album introducing is a big uh 
landmark in that genre. He was out coming on the UK label, Mo Wax. Um, most of the acts came out of Bristol. Again, we've done a whole episode on this, so not going to spend a lot of time on it, but Massive Attack, Tricky, and Portishead, The Holy Trinity. And I got to say, I felt kind of gra- uh, gratified that Mato seems to be down on Portishead, which was my response going back. I loved him in the 90s, but going back and listening to him this last couple rounds, I, I, I liked him a little bit less. I will <laughs> accept no Portishead slander on this podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I actually was rooting for them against Matos by this point because I've kind of softened on that again. Um, but anyway, I, I just had to had to bring that up. But but um, the uh, he says that trip-hop held sway with dance music's more doctrinaire quarters, especially in Detroit. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and he also says that it fell out of favor among the Cognoscenti by 1996. And, and then he says something about calling it down-tempo. And I was confused by this. Explain the whole down-tempo thing and his down tempo good or bad and is trip hop down tempo or is down tempo a separate thing i mean down tempo became an umbrella term where where a lot of people threw all of the electronic music that wasn't really uh dance dance floor oriented so anything that kind of like before that they had specific names you know there's trip hop there's ambient uh there's uh intelligent dance music idm which didn't always really you know work because it wasn't dance music so there, there's just yeah. a, a whole lot of really messy messy labels and down tempo was was an easy thing that you can kind of stick on a record store wall and put all these cds in one place and isn't that really the goal is that you can yes. put a label on it so you can sell it better that's that is that's the whole secret sauce behind music genres actually is, is record store clerks looking to sell something then he gets into a discussion of moonshine records which was run by the levy brothers and in my notes, I started, I said, Steve and, and then I, because I was, he, he's real slick and he's real efficient, Matos, I mean, with his narrative. And he doesn't, a lot of these writers will tell you, you know, give you these really tedious sentences about so-and-so's full name, birth date, death date, you know, and like this person did this. And that, you know, Matos is much more artful and he'll casually mention as an aside that the Levy brothers ran, you know, uh, Moonshine Records. Anyway, I never caught the name of the other brother, so apologies to the other Levy brother. Um, but one of them was named Steve. They put together a compilation-only label, but they had major label distribution. And back in the days of physical CD sales, that was a big deal because you either have to put it in your trunk and drive it to every record store in the country yourself, or you have had to plug into a network that had tractor-trailer trucks and shipping docks and dollies and big dudes to tote this stuff around. And, and you know mail rooms and shipping and all that stuff to get it out to the stores. Techno Truth was their first comp. It came out in October of '92. Um, they had uh, a lot of luck with their speed limit, 140 BPMs plus, which put out three volumes in 1993 alone. Um, Matos calls their stuff a useful four dummies guide to UK hardcore's ongoing splinter into jungle, DMV, and happy hardcore. And um, people, they had UK contacts like Tall Paul Newman, who is the resident DJ at London's Tunmills Club. Uh, Turnmills. Turnmills, my bad, my bad. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, kind of greased the path for super club house and da- trance collections from UK labels like Cleveland City, Tomato, and Hooge Tunes. Yeah, Hooge Tunes. They okay. were they were a big progressive house and trance label. And the thing about Moonshine Records is you can't, you really can't, uh, you know, say they were, they were everywhere. Their distribution deal was obviously very good because, you know, in a world where the border between America and Canada is apparently 50 feet tall and difficult to get anything across moonshine records, all their compilations were up there in Canada too. The happy to be hardcore series was like a big staple for everybody around here and fueled some of the big happy hardcore parties, uh, thrown by, uh, Canadian DJ Anabolic Frolic and the Speed Limit 140 BPM CDs were there as well. All the Terror, Cor- Terror Corps uh, compilations and stuff like that. Like the amount of Moonshine Records compilations that filled the HMV where I was growing up, it was like it was like half the rack. And so you can't underestimate the importance of that stuff because this is a great way to introduce kids to to new sounds they can't hear on the radio. They're not seeing on MTV, and if they don't. If they're not lucky enough to live in a city like New York or L.A. that has dance clubs that are playing this stuff and they're not close enough to raves or they're not into the scene, um, then, you know, they have no way to hear this stuff. So it sounds like it served a pretty useful purpose, although uh, the Cognoscenti tut it, did they not? Uh, a little bit. I mean, Moonshine had 
uh, you know, legitimacy because they started as an LA rave promotion company and they had, uh, legitimate connections and, and everything that they were putting out was good. If maybe a little bit out of date, like the whole idea was, was that anything that you're hearing on one of these compilations is probably already two years old. Uh, but you know, not everybody is on that cutting, cutting edge. I used to say this all the time because as a, as a trance DJ, I used to play all the classics and I'd get tutted myself by like, you know, London, London DJs who are like, this is old. And I'm like, well, you know, like people aren't hearing this stuff in Canada, man. It's like this stuff is it's got to get played. It's 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 a, it's an anthem for a reason. Yep. And so let's hear our next track. This is DJ John Kelly's Funky Desert Breaks from 1996. Funky Desert Breaks from DJ John Kelly, 1996. So was this a record or was this a set? This was a DJ set released by Moonshine. And it's one of those ones that was in so many people's cars back in the mid 90s. And uh, it, 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 I wouldn't say that it carried the Florida break slash California like sun soaked break scene. But it, it, it's one of those mixes that everybody in that scene knew and loved. Okay, and we'll be back to the Florida break scene um, in a minute. But first, some of the other series they put out, uh, Journeys by DJ, which was DJ sets. And this is something that the dance scene has wanted to do literally since, what, the seventh episode of the first Techno Roll series back in the 70s? Like, uh, the, remember the club owner in New York who wanted, all he wanted to do was record the sets his DJs were playing, license the, it from the appropriate labels, and put it out as a compilation and the American record business didn't want any part of that. Very quickly, they started putting out their own janky-ass dance compilations that simulated DJ sets. Um, and then they retreated from that after the implosion of disco in the early 80s. And so now, finally, we're getting what should have been coming out since the 70s, is just sets of DJs performing. Um, they also had the United DJs of America series with volumes by Frankie Knuckles, David Morales, Scott Hardkiss, Josh Wink. So kind of a mix of, I mean, David Morales, a 70s guy, famous from The Loft, Frankie Knuckles, 80s guy, famous from The Warehouse. Of course, Frankie Knuckles at this point is one of the big pop remixers uh, in the dance scene. And then you get people like Scott Hardkiss and Josh Wink that are kind of this third generation of American DJs that are truly in the rave scene. So yeah, these, these CDs really held up. You look back at the United DJs of America series and it's like all the DJs that they picked were were important pioneers in their in their specific areas so good job again with moonshine like anybody that's talking crap about them it's like they had their finger on the pulse yep and funky desert breaks which we just played from was one of their best loved titles mixed by John Kelly who'd started at the moonshine parties outside outside LA in 93 and his breakbeats and 303 sound that shuffled more than it rocked out with a heavy new age overlay that marks it as pure Cali. And that is one of the things I've noticed that that there is a weird kind of habit of putting new age touches into the music that comes out of California. I've had a lot of these mixes on shuffle or had a lot of shuffles that include mixes and different tracks and stuff. And I'm just, you know, kind of learning to, ah, what's this? I'm, I'm guessing it's that, you know, and, and, uh, I'm, now you're starting to pick that sun-drenched California yeah, sound out, right? Exactly, exactly. And and also the Moonshine Records had these, the artwork looked like party flyers. So, um, which is good branding in a way for people, you know, I imagine kids younger than me that were in places like I had been when I was a teenager, like Borger, Texas, the middle of nowhere. They're hearing about rave on TV and in magazines. So something like this, would communicate this is the rave you're hearing about so although um as we'll talk about later that kind of limited uh limited the way those cds were marketed and seen um then he talks about the quango which is an imprint run by bruno gez g-u-e-z your gez is as good as mine <laughs> 
I think that's a criminal felony in most states, but I'll let, it, I'll let it slide. Jason Bentley and Bruno Gez. It was distributed by Island, which is one of the big UK labels, although it's a major label with major distribution in the States. Um, Bentley had been uh, coming out of Herb magazine, and A Journey into Ambient Groove was his first uh, comp. And that Quango is more down tempo, whereas Moonshine, um, what was Mo- Moonshine? Would you say? Ah, uh, I mean, it was kind of all over the place. Trip hop, uh, rave, uh, breakbeat, everything else. Quango was definitely the older, classier label. They carried like Bomb the Bass, Kruder and Dorfmeister, Talvin Singh, like guys, guys that were like you know, if you were hip and cool, you could have this. This is decent dinner party grooves. You're not gonna rock too hard like you would with a moonshine compilation i see and then so hence matos's description of saying that their artwork and concepts were far more tasteful though just as time bound which is a nice way i guess of saying their stuff is dated a little bit he recommends the pop fiction comp from 1996 as the best of quango's compilations which i had a really hard time tracking that down um I looked it up on discogs and was able to find what the tracks were and kind of find most of the tracks but i didn't find anybody a lot of times you can say, you know, put in an album name, even if it's a compilation, and somebody will have uploaded the whole thing to YouTube. So if you've got that comp, upload the whole thing to YouTube. I'd like to hear it. Yeah, it's 25 years ago, man. Things are disappearing off the internet, and it is up to us to save it. That's right. Uh, important and timely message. Um, and then then he gets to the Funky Break scene, which uh, centered in Orlando, Florida. He, he has some funny commentary about Florida. I think he calls Orlando the most party-oriented city in Florida, uh, and and that they face considerable competition for that title, um, but they were into what he calls this a, a electro, which is you know Africa Bambata's Planet Rock from '82 is is that style. Of course, two live crew who migrated from LA to Florida and hooked up with Luther Campbell and put out the you know Florida based ghetto based style um, is a big factor. So of course, electro is going to be big in Florida, but they also, he describes it as a swirling, ingratiating music, often feather light, which is not something you associate with booty music with the big 808 bass and the, and the sound systems, but, um, you know, showing that it's a blend and a mix. DJ Icy was the, was the big guy in the scene. And, and Mato says he would basically slow down piano driven UK hardcore anthems to 136 BPM and make feel-good breakbeat with it. It's big in Florida and California and disdained elsewhere. Was it disdained in Canada? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's disdained, but unless you were close to Florida or California, it was the kind of thing where there was maybe one or two DJs in your city that did Florida break sets on occasion, and you'd hear it once at a blue moon. I loved it, but it was so weird because it's it was so slow compared to anything else that you heard breakbeat-wise. Like you had... Uh, rave breakbeat running at 150 to you know 170 BPM, and then you get this hip hop influenced 120 beats per minute breakbeat with uh, very little bass uh, because it's kind of break uh, break dancing music and electro synth lines in 303, and it's just something completely different. So I, I think people just didn't know what what exactly to do with it. You know, like this is again we're we're dealing with. We're dealing with white people in the suburbs and they just don't have enough funk to carry it with them. You know, they need the <laughs> funk. The, the funk needs to be provided. <laughs> I think that's a very fair assessment. And um, he also talks about Dave Miner, who performed his AK 1200, was also coming out of Orlando. Um, and he gets into, quote, crazy breakbeat stuff, which is beginning to be branded as jungle coming out of UK. And again, we've done whole episodes on jungle. Um, African Af, Anglo-African scene coming out of London um, at this time, evolving out of hardcore and darkcore. 93 was Jungle's big year with labels like Suburban Bass, Moving Shadow, Urban Shakedown, Reinforced, and Ram, all, quote, putting out great records like Firecrackers. And then dub and, Drum and Bass, Mato sort of distinguishes as, as the harder-hitting, more minimal tracks as opposed to uh, some of the other tracks that are straight Jungle, although... As he says, the jungle nickname ultimately falls out of favor and DMB becomes the go to. So, drum and bass kind of subsumes uh, jungle. Um, and then, yeah, jungle becomes like a, a subgenre of drum and bass, just on, as far as terminology goes. And we've talked about jungle versus drum and bass terminology ad nauseum on other episodes. I feel like we've broken it down yep. really, really well in past episodes. So, I encourage people to check that out. But the, the main thing is just Ragged Jungle took over in the UK around 93 as well. And drum and bass was added 
as a new genre name for DJs that weren't playing Ragged Jungle to like be able to kind of like muscle a scene out in the corner of the Ragged Jungle uh, invasion. Yeah. And so, but you know, none of that happened in North America. We didn't witness that. We didn't know about it. We didn't realize it was this big contentious thing surrounding if it's a jungle, is a drum and bass. So a lot of people here use it interchangeably and that is perfectly fine. Don't ever let anybody get all snobby at you as to, is it jungle, is it drum and bass? It's fine. You're ruining me, Ryan. I was going to go to a party and start bullying somebody about that. So now you've saved them. Um, and he also talks about progressive house, which is another scene that's going on in England at that time. Very melodic style, kind of a counter to uh, jungle in that it's long, slow journeys that let the record speak for themselves. Um, and then he mentions Underworld's big hit uh, with the double A side, Rez Cowgirl in 1993. Steph is telling me to cue, but I will cue in just a second, Steph. He settle down. Um, and um, Underworld's interesting because they evolved up an old new, re- new romantic band from the early 80s called Frur, which, again, we've discussed on a previous episode, and I couldn't pronounce it then either. They added DJ Darren Emerson. And now it's time to hear a word from our sponsors. I tried to play a track, but Steph stepped in and saved the day. So let's hear from our sponsors. We'll come back. We'll continue our discussion of we're about to start talking about Big Beat. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, so um, he talks about underworld and then he artfully segues by mentioning that they're on junior boy's own records and uh boy's own was uh, was a fanzine that had a big impact on the acid house scene and we've talked about it in multiple episodes but another act on that label was the dust brothers soon to become the chemical brothers um they're so they're uh boy's own had a big record in 93 with this underworld a double a side res and cowgirl and their other big record in 93 was song to the siren by the dust brothers who are two guys and we've talked about we did a whole big beat episode we've talked about ed simons and tom rollins of manchester before uh, this was an interesting detail though that matos had that i don't think reynolds had was that simons had borrowed 300 pounds from a friend and told him if he didn't pay it back in six months, I'm going to sign over 10% of my future royalties to you. So I bet that guy wishes uh, that he hadn't been able to pay that back. But but I don't know if you could enforce a deal like that anyway. But um, nonetheless, they paid it back pretty quickly. 
And it turns out that Song to the Siren was huge in Orlando, which explains why he's talking about Orlando in a chapter about San Bernardino, California. Aha! With Matos, whenever he introduces some element and you're going, what the hell does this have anything to, to do with anything? You got to know he's going to weave it back in. Just, just Yeah, all of this is basically a big swirling uh, whirlpool that's leading us to Organic 96 and the Chemical Brothers are there. So you got to explain, you know, the breakbeat culture that they came from or not that they came from, but the music came from. Because without Florida breaks and without a kind of hip hop break sound, uh, then Big Beat never really gets started because that's that's what they pull from. Yeah, yeah. And, th and that's key. Um, although... And and again, we should probably mention breaks are the the bit of an old record where it's just the drums. Like when James Brown says, you know, let the drummer talk, and it's just the drums. And then DJs like DJ Curl, Cool Herc, et cetera, sampled or you know played those on records, and later that became sampling. And so when you're talking about breaks music, it's music that's taking recorded snippets of real drummers playing real breaks. And at this point, the technology was letting you sample a lot more of that. You could sample minutes of drum breaks and mix them into your drum mixes whereas somebody like marley marl in the 80s only had seconds of drum breaks that he could sample um yeah and the uh, big criticism with breaks before this point is that it still is a bit too thin like we had Mattos talking about how it's kind of a light touch and now the chemical brothers fix this by by really putting some oomph behind it all with their production skills so all of a sudden you're starting to have i mean chemical brothers i remember when when i heard loops of fury on the wipeout excel soundtrack and it was it was so loud and thumping that it just gave me a headache but i couldn't stop listening to it yeah, it's it's markedly powerful stuff. And and they get an invitation to come to Orlando and play. And they're just treated as a lark, like, hey, it's a free plane ticket to Disney World. We'll play some piddly-ass show, and then we'll uh, go to Disney World. But it turns out they're playing to 2,500 people, and they're thinking, hey, maybe there's something going on. And they played an unreleased track uh, called Chemical Beats that is going to inspire their final name, which is they changed from Dust Brothers to Chemical Brothers because the original Dust Brothers sued them. I don't know how they thought they were going to get away with that. but um, I think it was just one of those things where you don't realize you're going to be as big as you're going to be. It's like one of those foolish things where, where your first band is a rip of something and you don't really think about the legal uh, repercussions because it's not going to be this whole thing. Yeah. And yeah, and it, it, it does yeah it becomes a thing even people like me uh heard about him and, and got into it we'll talk about that in a second then he brings in this guy peter walensky uh who had run a tampa zine a zine called trip he becomes the new astroworks and our guy and he gets a hold of the dust brothers demo maybe he saw them at that show that doesn't say but um he takes that to brian long who we talked about before that's the former sst records guy who's there at astroworks and long immediately hears it and says Grab it. We'll sell 25,000 copies of that without blinking. And if we don't sign them, we're stupid. So good yeah, in our work. Absolutely. And Astroworks had been mainly uh, ambient focused. They were Future Sound of London and a couple other guys like that. And so uh, Chemical Brothers was was a bit of a departure for them, but it was a timely one. And it got them in on on that big mid-90s electronica explosion. Yeah, and so then they put together an album, Exit Planet Dust, which comes out in 1995. Immediate hit with critics in America, including pop and rock writers. Starts with college radio and then gets on to modern rock radio, which is a huge leap. Like, this stuff has not been on rock radio. You haven't had dance at this point in the mid-90s. You hadn't had dance music on rock radio since the late 60s um, with very few exceptions, maybe Queens, another one bites the dust and, and, and stuff. And maybe a little bit of village people's a joke, but I mean, rock radio had been sit on your ass, nod your head, do not dare get up and dance to this music for decades when they, uh, when the chemical brothers break through and their live show, no dancers, no costumes, no quote, real instruments, just audio visual sensationalism so they've got a big screen behind them and they're projecting images and they trigger their gear in real time they're running five samplers multiple guitar pedals to manipulate the sounds so again it's this whole controversy where moby had copped out copped out i'm not judging the guy but he was playing dat tapes and, and dancing around instead of mixing it live whereas these guys it was important to them to create the sounds live so that it is a performance and it was um the fact that it wasn't pretty music that was quite rough and abrasive made it an easy sell to rock audiences. And I know that for a fact. I was one of the people that was 
total rock. I hear the Chemical Brothers, and I'm like, I'll have some of that. And um, Nine Inch Nails had paved the way on rock radio. And then um, there's a whole little discussion of the... Um, the strategy with how this, they kind of got on there saying it's like nine inch nails, man. This is the same stuff. We swear it's not, it's not, uh, it's not questionable. It's not fruity. It's not anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and their um, words, not mine, obviously. Yes. Yes. And within a year of the chemical brothers and eventually orbital and the prodigy are getting regular rotation on K rock and K rock is a legendary alternative station out of LA um, that made Southern California, you know, a new wave and punk hotbed for a decade. And, Exit Planet, Planet Dust also changed. Exit Planet Dust changed the way EDM albums looked, and it wasn't EDM yet; it was electronica. Um, but the the graphics, it it looked like it could have been like stoner rock record. That's what I first thought it was at the record store. I remember that vividly. I thought it was like the new Fu Manchu record, and it. Um, it has what they call scene neutral graphics. It had like a photo. I don't know if it was from the 70s or if it was a recreation, but it has a 70s car and two hippie looking kids on the side of the road, presumably about to get a ride from um, or being dropped off by the car. So it yeah, looks it's different. kind of a psychedelic uh, vibe to it, which is what they were going for, which fit fit kind of the soundscape that they were creating as well. If you're if you're not going to acknowledge your rave or electronic roots, then psychedelia works. And it's kind of the same thing with Prodigy when they released Fat of the Land. That that album cover just looked like an, uh, an alt-rock, a heavy alt-rock, or maybe like a, a new metal album cover. Yeah, yeah. And um, then they bring in Fatboy Slim. We've talked about him in previous episodes, especially the Big Beat episode. Norman Cook out of Brighton. Um, which was one of the first times Brighton makes a big cultural impact in Britain or the world. Uh, the style was perfected in London, even though Cook came from Brighton and the Chemical Brothers came from Manchester. They all three DJed at heavenly social nights at Turnmills. Um, Cook was ex-House Martin's alternative rock uh, bass player in the 80s. Then he started releasing tracks as Beat International, Freak Power, Pizza Man, The Mighty Dub, Cats, um, had, had a lot of tracks. I'm going to have to cut the Fat Boy Slim discussion short, though, because I want to finish the stuff. But I did, there was one interesting thing that Matos emphasized that I don't think Reynolds or other sources on Big Beat talked about that much, which was that the Big Beat drug mix was cocaine plus ecstasy. So cocaine's having a big moment in the 90s. And Steph tells me now it's time to play the Dust Brothers' Song to the Siren, 1994. Dust Brothers song to the siren. Why'd you pick this particular track? Ah, I wanted the Dust Brothers version, the original one that that DJ Icy got his hands on, the one that's still kind of more Florida breaksy or influenced by Florida breaks than than you know uh, paving new ground uh, and and being more big beat. You know, so that's 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 why I grabbed that version of it. It might be something that people haven't heard before. I see, and this. Assertion that they were influenced by Florida Breaks. How do we know that? How do we know that they were listening to? Well, Florida? well, here, here's the thing. All of the DJs, like uh, they weren't joking when they were talking about everything kind of going on at the Heavenly Social. All the guys, Fatboy Slim, Chemical Brothers, uh, Death in Vegas, and a bunch of other guys were were DJing there every like all the time and hanging out there. And these are all guys that are big into kind of hip hop sounds and breakbeat sounds. And they were getting a lot of these records. Like if you hear DJ sets from from there, from that era, there's DJ Icy mixed in. There's a bunch of electro mixed in. Uh, just like Florida Breaks was influenced by the, that electro and hip hop sound, they were also influenced by the electro and hip hop sound and also were mixing in this Florida Breaks as well. So it all just kind of like mixes together and, and what they brought to it that was new was this kind of oomph and this rockism that I think uh, Florida Breaks never got off the synthesizers. They never got off the 303 and the Moog and stuff like that. But uh, like all of a sudden, uh, you know, Chemical Brothers adding a lot of more traditional instrumentation, Fatboy Slim adding a lot of screaming guitars and stuff. So that's what they kind of brought into it on top of just that producer's sheen and the the heavier beat. And song structures. 
like total Beatles yes. song structures. And the Chemical Brothers even did a track we talked about before that's basically a recreation of Beatles Tomorrow Never Knows, although it's not a sample and it's not a ripoff of it. It was brilliantly done. Um, then he works in a discussion of Moby's uh, first full album on Elektra. Now, they, uh, his previous label had been had put out, I think, two or three albums on him by this point, but they weren't albums he controlled. So this is the first album Moby has full control over. Everything is wrong. Comes out March 14th, 1995. Matos calls it a bold declaration of mastery of every genre he attempted from blues punk, programmatic minimalist, minimalist composition, or happy hardcore. Rock critics were in awe. Spin Magazine named it the best album in 1995, but the dance underground was far less enamored. And he talks about how he played. Moby played at Lollapalooza on the side stage that year. Lollapalooza was at its peak around this time in terms of popular impact. And he's doing lots of punk songs, playing with a, a trio at various points, and doing random classic rock covers like Sweet Home Alabama and stuff. He clearly wanted out of his old scene pronto. Unfortunately for Moby, the album stalled after only selling 69,000 copies, whereas the Chemical Brothers' Exit Planet Dusk, Dust, we're talking about a year later, mid-96, is at 100,000 and climbing. So... Um, He's gonna. He's. We're gonna come back to Moby. I'm guessing because Moby's about to have a huge, huge, huge record in a few years. But for right now, Moby's kind of got to go back to the drawing board. He's in the desert. He's wandering the desert, trying to figure himself out. Yeah, and and he's gonna make a, a couple of missteps there. We'll talk about those in future chapters, maybe. Um, but then '96 was also in the. Matos steps out and gives us some context for the record business in 1996, and this was a worrisome year now the 90s are this gold mine decade for the record companies because they've got cds which are way more like basically double the price of records and are cheaper to produce and you can sell your whole back catalog because everybody and their dad wanted to buy the beatles and the rolling stones and james brown and everything on cd but it's starting to slow down by 96. And also you had the big grunge and hip-hop explosions in the early 90s. You know, Dr. Dre and Nirvana had these massive breakthroughs. And this stuff's kind of sputtering. Kurt Cobain had obviously killed himself. The record companies had figured out how to replicate the Nirvana formula or thought they had after Cobain's death. And where it went from the sort of alternative scene that had all kinds of stuff getting on the major labels, all kinds of stuff getting on the radios, all kinds of random stuff having hits, suddenly all you had was silver chair and stuff like that. And they had a candle box and they had this real formulaic sound. And somehow the sales start dropping. And hip hop, meanwhile, is getting sucked into this ugly East Coast, West Coast beef. And in September of 96, Tupac is going to get killed. March 97, Biggie's going to get killed. Hip-hop bounces right back under Puff Daddy and Jay-Z with the Jiggy era, but they didn't know that was going to happen yet. So they're looking for something to save them. Catalog sales were down 25%. 500 record shops closed in the U.S. that year. And um, then he kind of talks about how it took Alternative 15 years from the Sex Pistols in 78, which they did not make it in the States for a wide variety of reasons I've discussed in other episodes. But you had groups like R.E.M., Depeche Mode, The Cure, U2, that eventually – that comes out of the post-punk scene and eventually make it to stadium-level acts in the States by the early 90s. Only a handful of them you know, had the fortitude and the, and the endurance to, to grind that out and do it. Then Nirvana explodes. So it's not like Nirvana came out of nowhere. Nirvana was the capstone to a number of acts and waves that had broken on the shores and just completely took over. And nobody had expected that to happen. He says no one had expected those bands to take a faltering business out of its slump, but they start to pin those hopes on EDM. So, you know, we saw Rick Rubin already kind of get seduced by this half-ass it and fail. Now the record industries are sniffing out and getting interested. And so we come back to our Jerry Gerard, who started the chapter. He's the concert promoter for Nine Inch Nails. He's looking to put together essentially concerts using EDM or electronic acts. Try not to say EDM because it doesn't come into the terminology until the 2010s. Um, he keeps hearing it'll never happen. And he gets opportunity at Woodstock 94 is 
the show that breaks Nine Inch Nails as a big national act. And we're worth pointing out that this is Woodstock 94, the the fun one, not Woodstock 99, the nightmare one. Yes, exactly. And we'll do a whole chapter on Woodstock 99 in a couple weeks, the ADM side of it. Yeah. So Fred Durst is not at Woodstock 94 and they don't burn the whole place down. Nine Inch Nails is covered with flour and... um, makes it into the the stratosphere as rock stars there but gerard gets to have a side tent he gets to have a dance tent called and he calls it rave stock and he and uh scotto from nasa the new york club put it together it's slapped together at the last minute they only announced the lineup two weeks ahead of time but it's a pretty successful experiment they've got djs doc martin frankie bones little louis vega is there they also have live acts orbital d light and the orb and then Aphex Twin apparently was going to play, but he got pulled mid-set over contract issues because he signed a fake name because he didn't want to give the major label record company the right to put out his set uh, as a CD. But that convinced Gerard that a large-scale electronic Lollapalooza type thing would work. And so and that's, I, that's what I like as far as like an identifier. They were looking at is how can we do Lollapalooza but like EDM style? Yeah, exactly, because Lollapalooza was massive from like 91 to the mid nineties at this point, it was sputtering out at this point, not sputtering out, but it's not what it had been. Um, definitely wasn't growing anymore. No, definitely not. And, and, and so they put out the organic nineties or organic 96 is the name of the show they settle on. They put it in San Bernardino. It's actually in big bear at a ski resort. Um, San Bernardino's in the San Fernando Valley and there's mountains outside of it that separate sort of the L.A. and San Fernando Valley from the dreaded Central Valley of California where they grow all the asparagus and stuff. And um, so this is in the mountains between those areas. It uh, it was originally named Chaotica after his own booking agency. Um, and he, he had the connections to do this. Like there's a reason this guy's doing this because he's not only working for Nine Inch Nails, he's also promoting Underworld, The Orb, and The Chemical Brothers, and Prodigy, and Meat Beat Manifesto, so that's kind of why Meat Beat Manifesto ends up. But it's time to play our next track, our final track for the show. This is Underworld's Cowgirl, which we already talked about. It was a double A side hit with Rez on the back, Cowgirl by Underworld from 1993. Now, why'd you pick this one instead of the track that was on Train Spotting? Because we've already put that on a different show. You know, I don't remember if we've done it on that show, but Cowgirl to me was always the the, the better track. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about Organic 96 is that it was broadcast on the radio, and I think it was K-Rock. And uh, somebody recorded the five-hour broadcast, and they have, like, the whole thing. And Underworld opens up with Rez and rolls right into Cowgirl, and it gave me those frizzles, those, like, uh, you know, the hair rising up on my arm. So I was just like, you know what? It's got to be Cowgirl now. And I, uh-huh. I decided to just pick the studio version because, I don't know, the live one doesn't oomph as much. And I didn't want Steffi to have to try to rip something out of a five-hour audio file either. Very thoughtful and considerate. So that's Underworld. Um uh, we're still talking about putting the show together and, and he's got prodigy in his stable wants to get them but they are too busy making their second album and um so, and they were a bit worried about the party failing they didn't want to go there and do this event this kind of test this weird kind of out in the middle of nowhere in california party and have it fail and then be said that that prodigy doesn't have that drawing power so there was like a couple of little things that kept them out of it and and some question marks that a lot of people had like this party was apparently thrown together in four weeks there wasn't a lot of run-up time they have to bring in pascal rotella from uh, insomniac productions they're already around doing nocturnal wonderland and a couple other really big parties and he actually tells them don't do it don't do it on this weekend don't do it in this place uh you're gonna get crushed and uh, for a party that has like, a, you know, has an impact in a way because it's kind of a prototype event, uh, they needed 7,500 people to break even, only brings in about 6,500. 
and and is basically you know dwarfed by another party uh, down in, in you know around in the populated areas of California that pulls in like ten thousand people like like with nothing no problems so you know it, it's a bit of an odd duck of an event an important moment in, in in rave history but as far as the people you know in California it was just a blip it was another event. Yeah, and Indoor was the L.A. party there. And if you know anything about the geography of L.A., it is very hard to navigate through all that traffic and to get all the way up to San Bernardino and then take another 40-minute drive up into the mountains. So you're asking people to go um, quite a ways. But um, he put together a whole team, not just Rotella, who booked the DJs, but you've got um, his partner, Philip Blaine, who had you know worked with Golden Voice, which was a big punk promoter that he'd start promotion that he'd started in 81. He also had Sue Zimmerman, who's the New York publicist for Orbital. And that's, I think, the secret sauce that the LA Raves didn't have. And we've talked about Raves already in LA and the LA area that have had as many as 18,000 people a few years earlier. But those were seen as Raves, which was this odd thing that the US concert business had no way, didn't know what it was or how to deal with it. But now they're trying to do it as a concert. And the PR fact and the fact that they hook up all these acts and they have acts who have faces and names and perform on stage and they bring in press to interview these acts. That makes it a lot sort of comprehensible and manageable for the American music business in a way that like a bunch of kids spinning white labels and faceless DJs commuting with the crowd did not. Um, and then let's see. Uh, then there's a little anecdote about Gary Richards and Rick Rubin. Gary Richards is the LA promoter who became Rick Rubin's A&R guy for the ill-fated white labels uh, imprint uh, out of Rick Rubin's American Records. And he talks about uh, see, bumping into Rick Rubin and Tower Records, getting a hold of Prodigy's first album and saying, Rick, you got to listen to this, going to Rick's car, putting it in. And Rubin's only reaction is just to nod his head and say, shit, I think we passed on this. <laughs> so he knew immediately as he heard the record that it was going to be big doings and regretted that he didn't get it. Um and this is also around the time Firestarter comes out, which is a single, I think, that preceded their second album. And this is the first time Keith Flint performs on a Prodigy record. He's the lead vocalist, but before that, it had just been uh, Liam... And I'm blanking on Liam. I was Ma it was Max Sim that was doing the rapping on some of the some of the Jilted Generation album, but they were never Flint had never never done anything like that before, and he finally kind of came up on a track that uh, Liam Howlett had written that that was originally designed to not have any lyrics or anything else like that, and Flint was like, "I got something for this. Let me do this," and knocked it out of the park. Yeah, and had changed his look. So he had this reverse mohawk and he starts wearing a lot of eyeliner and stuff and just suddenly is a star. And, and there's a video uh, for Firestarter that's a star turn for Flint. Um, and then the, they quote Dan Charnas, the great music writer who was at the time working for Rick Rubin at the uh, label. And he says, they were stars. And of course, Rick never mentioned it again. So, <laughs> so it's nice to see Rick Rubin failing at something. I mean, as much as we love Rick Rubin, it, it, you know, the guy can't, nobody can win every time. Um, so then they talk about how it's the concert itself. It's at the Snow Valley Ski Resort in the San Bernardino National Forest, $25 to $30 tickets. Like you said, they didn't meet their mark to, to make a profit. It uh, starts at 4 p.m. Saturday, ends 8 a.m. Sunday. Had three local acts open, Oversoul, Seven, Cirrus, Electric Sky Church. A uh, little interesting little aside where they talk about, I think it was the guy from Electric Sky Church who had been working for Ron Howard in his film studio in some editing capacity and got fired when they discovered he was this raver and they were accusing him of being on acid uh, at this at the time of showing up to work on acid. So that's the reputation of rave at this point. If your boss finds out you're associated with it, he thinks you're dropping acid uh, uh, at, at your desk. Um, oh, you you could tell if he was. That's for sure. I would like to think so. I mean, I've, I've worked with some, you know, quiet drunks on the down low and, and, you know, you might notice that the giant big gulp smells a little weird and so do they, but I've never seen anybody get away with dropping acid. Maybe micro, I think they microdosed as a matter of course at this point, but back in the day, you weren't seeing people uh, dropping acid at work very often. Um, but the main lineup is Luke Guru, 
Meet Meet Manifesto. And they're kind of an industrial act that had dabbled in acid house this whole time. And again, the, the line between industrial and dance music is, is very permeable. Um, definitely lots of people are listening to both and dancing to both through this era. Yeah, Meet Meet Manifesto ca- crosses over into IDM, intelligent dance music, which was kind of like the label, anything that was drum and bass, but way too kind of cacophonous ended up kind of being put into. So that was where Meet Beat Manifesto kind of sat. Yeah. And then Underworld is next, then the Chemical Brothers, then Orbital, then the Orb. And the Orb is playing the very early morning set. And Michael Dog was supposed to close it, but the, the roadies doing the thing were shutting down because they wanted to go home. And Gerard had to tell them, no, 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 we got to let the last act play. And they're like, it's just a DJ. They th- I guess they thought it's just like, you know, maybe you got a guy randomly spinning records up there to, to give some sound to the crowd as they leave the show. But he's he makes the rock raucous roadies. Uh, presumably, I, he didn't quite make it clear if Michael Dog got to play or not in the narrative. Um, but like I said, it's a showcase for the press, dozens of interviews with the acts. Underworld is kind of the hot act at the time because Train Spotting has come out and is, I mean, that movie was the shit when it came out in the States among certain hipsters. Um, and their track, Born Slippy, parentheses, Nux, was in that. And the crowd was bigger than expected, even though they didn't come close to making their money so it was, really was just they were taking a flyer on this it's also a mixed mixed race crowd and a mixed age crowd although there's plenty of drugs plenty of acid and e but the vibe is quote more adult than kitty and um tons of scenesters backstage people we've mentioned in previous chapters like kurt x and david prince are back there they had good sound that turbo sound system they had laser lights um and then carl hyde of underworld used oxygen because it's high altitude and uh, uh, he quotes somebody calling him some old dude rock star which is ouch <laughs> mm. uh, you know he does kind of look like some old dude rock star even even in the mid 90s he was he was kind of looking looking pretty old and this is i guess they said it was definitely an older crowd you need somebody who can drive and drive you to big bear in order to be able to go to this thing so it definitely skewed more towards towards that and there's just like a really big difference between your average you know dirt rave uh out out in the desert and and what they were doing here with a with a professional stage and you know like 30 speakers strung up by cables and and everything else like that as compared to you know you get a one guy in a in a rental van going back and forth delivering 15 busted up bass bin speakers for a rave i mean it's just a it's just a different different thing going on which is kind of why this event ends up kind of standing out compared to even the see the light tour which was still a bunch of uh you know a bunch of different rave promoters in different cities signing this 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 package of artists and putting them wherever they can stick them this is this is the yeah this this is sometimes clubs sometimes food courts sometimes wherever you know (laughs) yeah so all of a sudden you have this entire uh this this infrastructure and this uh you know all these guys who are professional touring uh you know mechanics and workers and stuff like that putting this thing together and making it you know something pretty different yeah but with the cap with the the price of that is that it's set up to make people stare at the stage rather than to dance and be a community. So this, you know, I would contrast this with the mega raves in England. Like England had already learned how to promote big shows, but stay true to the rave ethos in America to get that big. Although, like I said, we've already had one-offs with like 20,000 people in LA, but those things sort of collapsed under their own weight and hadn't, built the audiences didn't grow after that and so um this is a different approach to getting ed electronic dance music across in the states and this got the u.s concert business semi-seriously interested for the first time so that's kind of why there's a landmark and then the chapter ends with this odd thing where he talks about um children a track by italian producer robert miles aka roberto concina that went to number 21 in the states sold over 2 million internationally and it's a trance track and he says that trance is written like your sixth grade teacher taught you to write an essay with a beginning and a middle and an end then he talks about sasha and digweed and we've talked about them in previous episodes and they're basically the djs that made simon reynolds not care on djs i think is a fair assessment but yeah yeah um, they're the ones that made it so boring that he that he tuned out yeah and so but they've got this compilation track or set track northern exposure 
um, that's put out on two separate CDs in the States. And they do a mini U.S. tour, get booked in New York City. And in the course of that, while they're in New York City, they get signed up to do a, a monthly set at Twilo and ends up doing five years of monthly sets to quote 3,000 people cheerious. So, um, but again, it's also the commonality with with organic is that the crowd is facing the DJ instead of dancing. So it's more like an audience. So why why is this little thing tacked on at the end here? Oh, you know, we're we're getting we're getting set up. Each each chapter always has the last couple paragraphs kind of bring in a couple of new characters or names or a genre of music that's going to kind of be the focus. And I think I think trance might be next finally because uh, you know oh. Sasha and Digweed being the superstar DJs that they are, Children by Robert Miles being that omnipresent trance track that that was playing on on like MTV and all the other places. So I feel like uh, this is just the setup. I see. I see. It's that old narrative art or craft that uh, Michelangelo Matos has made, has used to make the underground as massive, how electronic dance music conquered America. Such a delightful book to read. And as always, be sure and check the mixography and listen to the DJ sets that he recommends and go to Spotify where he's got um, uh, 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 playlists for each chapter. And this chapter is kind of hard to get through because it's a lot of albums and it's a lot harder to slog through a playlist of albums than a fun playlist of just tracks. Not that I'm panning it. I'm just, that's just a fact when you're dealing with, this is the point in time where the American record industry makes a real push because they've got the chemical brothers and underworld and fat boy slim and other acts like that, that they feel like they can get behind. So, um, for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we'll be back next time. And next time it's going to be Woodstock 99, the infamous. Dear so, Lord. <laughs> indeed. Thanks, Ryan. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate talk about the American music industry's electronica push and the tragedy and debacle of Woodstock 99, which had a rave hanger. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.